One year after the IRA was passed, over $220 billion of clean tech projects have begun. A Financial Times article claiming VCs are wasting their time and your money. And the Small Business Administration offers $5 billion in loans to VC funds. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Since Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act one year ago, the clean tech and semiconductor sectors have announced 110 large-scale manufacturing projects, totaling $224 billion and creating over 100,000 jobs, according to analysis from the Financial Times. Clean energy and solar manufacturing plants are breaking ground across the country, 80% of which are in Republican districts. The IRA and CHIPS Act offered more than $400 billion in tax credits to domestic clean tech and semiconductor supply chains a year ago, and companies across the nation have taken advantage of it. Although Republican districts benefit the most from the influx of industry, Republican lawmakers are almost universally against the bills. They feel they are exorbitantly expensive for the American taxpayer and that the IRA should be rolled back significantly. To learn more about clean tech projects and the effectiveness of the IRA, I spoke with Oliver Libby. I'm Oliver Libby. I'm managing partner and co-founder of HL Ventures and City Rock Venture Partners here in New York. At HL Ventures, Oliver invests heavily into climate startups, among other sectors. Oliver, how much tailwind have the IRA and CHIPS Act given to the $224 billion of clean tech and semiconductor manufacturing projects funded since their passage? In other words, without federal funding, would many of these projects have been possible? So the effect of these large legislative wins for the clean tech industry is essentially in priming the pump and making the investment area even more attractive. I think that climate tech in general was already trending up uh, because of some things uh, around the fact that these technologies have become more affordable, that they're much more widely accepted, even in many time, many ways, net of people's political leanings. Um, and these are things that have changed a lot over the last 10 years. So things like solar power have become much more affordable uh, and just intrinsically are, are spreading throughout the country. The, so I think already the investment in this area was getting more interesting and, and active. The arrival of the large federal uh, bills uh, has just really galvanized the interest in the space. And so, yeah, I think it's been one of the really big bright spots. And as that capital starts flowing, I mean, you may have noticed that uh, some of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, decisions on how that funding is going to be flowing just started being handed down over the last few weeks. That is going to hopefully increase the pace of investment. And what it does is provide, and this is how it's intended to work, an unlock for private capital and make it much more likely indeed, as you point out, for these projects to get done. Are we already seeing positive climate indicators from clean tech projects? Or will it be years before the clean tech transition can impact climate change in a measurable way? It's definitely it's a long game. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's taken uh, arguably 150 years for greenhouse gases and uh, other things to build up in the atmosphere to cause the problems that we're seeing now. And climate is something that moves normally in trends that are you know thousands, if not millions of years long. And, and we as humans have succeeded in altering the climate in an unbelievably short amount of time, but still long periods of time from a, a human life perspective. Uh, I think, of course, that we are seeing, and, and by the way, there are folks much more qualified to give you a quantitative read on, for example, the last 15 or 20 years worth of climate innovation and how the tech industry has helped contribute to mitigating uh, emissions that might otherwise have ended up in the atmosphere. So without a doubt, the addition of uh, broad swaths of renewable energy power generation to the global energy mix uh, will have helped uh, somewhat in mitigating climate change. But we are only now just getting to scales in which you're going to see meaningful reductions. 
Uh, and the thing is, I mean, this is one of the big challenges in the space, Jackson, is it, we are um, we have to make these investments in order to see results and returns, not just financially, but in terms of climate gains, they're going to take 5, 10, 15 plus years. But if we're going to meet any of the goals that individual nations, states, and the global community have set, those uh, investments are, are frankly late by this time. And so we are only just beginning to see that scale really start to mean something. Do you think the government funding into semiconductor manufacturing groups will ultimately give the U.S. the edge in the AI arms race as the U.S. tries to catch China, the world's leading manufacturer of semiconductor chips? Well, you know, putting a national security lens on this, uh, I think having the manufacturing of any critically important component in the global technology economy reside mainly in one place. And in the case of, uh, you know, manufacturing in Taiwan, uh, you know, basically one very small island is just not a good bet for the global community. I mean, diversification for any reason, geopolitical conflict or any other reason is, uh, you know, is a really important component of de-risking the space. The fact that the United States is making very important commitments through the CHIPS Act and these other bills to bringing some of that manufacturing back over here not only diversifies the risk from a government, uh, from a, a global perspective, but also I think builds resilience here in the United States. So, you know, uh, I think, if done properly, we have the chance to become one of the leading manufacturers. Once again, this brings jobs back to the U.S. And I think, indeed, as you point out in your question, makes us more competitive in the technology side, in the software side of this, because if we can help control and understand the hardware that's attached to it, then our, our software technology is going to be even better. So I think it's a really important part of not only de-risking the global economy and, and making sure that the centers of power in these things are not just residing in one country or one island or one city, uh, but also indeed makes us more competitive in our innovation as well. Oliver, one last question. Republican critics of the IRA say the economy will grow faster with lower public spending and that the IRA is way too costly for the American taxpayer. Although Republican districts across the U.S. make up 80% of investments into clean tech, Republican politicians are uniformly against the IRA. Could all the steps toward climate progress be significantly rolled back if Republicans win big in 2024? I try and stay nonpartisan, Jackson, but uh, the simple truth in the answer to your question is if Republicans take both houses of Congress and, and potentially the White House, I think it will certainly have a direct impact on uh, on these bills, on the monies that are flowing towards these industries, and it cannot but have a negative impact on the actions we're taking to fight climate change. And let me make a point, you know, I, most of my training is in history before I got into the venture capital space. and. It is critically important to note that most of the great challenges in modern times have been solved by a cross-sector approach. In my own career, I have spent time in all the major sectors. I've been in government, I've been in nonprofit, and I've been in the business world. And the solutions to these challenges that face us that are so absolutely critical, vital, and dangerous is not in the province of any one industry. I sit here now in a venture capital firm. And I love the tech and innovation industry and the ecosystem we built in this country, but we do not alone hold the keys to solving these problems. Government funding, both of bench science, of de-risking major deployments of new technology, of being a partner to the private sector is critically important. And if we do anything to damage that, it will not only hurt our ability to fight climate change, it will damage the economy and it will cost us jobs and ultimately the intellectual and technology lead in the world. That was Oliver Libby, managing partner and co-founder of HL Ventures and of City Rock Venture Partners. Really appreciate your time, Oliver. Thank you for having me. Important questions. Venture capital funds are mostly just wasting their time and your money. That's the title of an article published yesterday by Bryce Elder of the Financial Times. 
Elder's piece discredits the venture capital industry's usefulness based on research done by equity strategist from Morgan Stanley. The research compares VC against the stock market over the past 20 years and finds that the average VC fund doesn't reliably outperform the average stock. Elder highlights that over the last 20 years, quote, a reasonable number of stocks outperformed the median VC fund in IRR. He also mentions VCs cheat a bit through their portfolio reports, which gives private assets an advantage over publicly traded assets. How do they cheat? Elder says, quote, VCs tend to only report marks on their portfolio once a quarter, and there's a whole toolbox of financing structures that can delay marking to market. Elder's conclusion, which according to the article aligns with the Morgan Stanley strategist's conclusion, is that the better alternative to investing with VCs is to have just bought Apple back in 2003. Apple has beaten the median VC performance, even on a volatility-adjusted basis, over 1, 3, 5, 10, 15, and 20-year views. So should we just leave Venture behind and buy stock in Apple? For more on that, I spoke with Lily Lyman. I'm Lily Lyman. I'm a general partner here at Underscore VC. Lily, the article points out that only a handful of VCs generate nearly all the sector returns. If that's true, why are there so many VCs? Does this mean that most VCs are operating at a loss most years? Yeah, it's such a it's a great question, um, and I think that there's a couple ways to think about it. You, you know, you, that the article shared a, a bunch of data on sort of the the overall performance of uh, private assets as a as a as a general asset class. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, venture is a business of power law, uh, and for those who haven't read the book, I, I recommend it. And it's and it's where you know the thesis is essentially sort of one or two big home runs carry the returns of an entire fund. Um, and that can be true across firms. And I do think in the case of, of venture, that can also be true across the industry. But I think if you peel back the data, um, you know, I think there's a lot more nuance behind the, some of the performance uh, based on different types of funds. And so, you know, he, now the venture industry has grown to thousands of firms with all different types of strategies. And I, I sort of categorize it in a couple of different ways, but, you know, there's the large multi-stage, multi-billion dollar firms like the Sequoias and Indexes and Lightspeeds of the world. Um, and then on the other end of the barbell, there are more focused strategies and um, and smaller funds and, and firms who, you know, like the benchmarks and the USBs of the world who have stayed relatively small and focused. Um, and, you know, firms like ours, like an underscore that's, you know, a few hundred million dollars, but has a very focused strategy. Um, and, you know, increasingly we're seeing a lot more emerging managers um, in the in the ecosystem. So I think when you look at sort of the, the performance data, um, you know, of course, everybody's striving to be those outliers and the highest performing firms. And yes, it's incredibly difficult to be um, that top top decile percent uh, percentage of, of performers. Um, I don't think that means that the the rest of the industry is performing at a loss or negative negative return or negative IRR. But um, yes, there are a lot of firms out there that are sort of in the the one to three x returns um, perspective. But with the ambition of if you do pick right. If you have a good strategy, you pick right, and you get a little bit lucky, um, there's the opportunity to to have a firm that does fall into that category of the, the 10x and beyond, which is what you know what all these firms are, are shooting for. If the numbers and graphs throughout Elder's article are accurate, some of which show that a reasonable number of stocks outperform the median VC fund on IRR, what's the benefit of investing at the VC firm instead of just investing in the stock market? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the data was, in my opinion, sort of cherry-picked to tell a certain story that aligned with the headline, um, and it really focused on median performance. Um, but I think, you know, unlike other asset classes, the distribution in venture is much higher. And so the, the highest uh, performance uh, quartiles actually 
have a much, much higher performance than other asset classes. So I think, you know, another data source from Cambridge Associates shows that, you know, historically, if you look over um, the last 15 years or so, the data, the top quartile of venture capital significantly outperformed other asset classes, private equity, real estate, large cap equity, high yield bonds, um, and others from a from total IRR perspective. And so I think, you know, the... Yes, well, there's, you know, I, th- I think there's sometimes a perception that, you know, venture capital can always deliver these types of returns. And yes, the median um, uh, may not outperform to the extent that people perceive it to. But I think the delta between the top, um, the top quartile uh, is extremely significant. And so that's why, you know, people play in the space, because if you, if you have the opportunity for that type of outsized return as a part of your portfolio, um, it is a worthwhile piece of the puzzle to have. Lily Elder's conclusion, which he gets from Morgan Stanley's research conclusion, is that we should just forego investing in VC because if you just bought Apple last year, three years ago, five, 10, 15, or even 20 years ago, you would have beaten the median VC performance every time. What do you think? Should we just all buy Apple and be done with venture capital? Well, the challenge I would have with that argument is how does he think Apple got started? Right. So if you look at, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, NVIDIA, all of these companies that are really carrying the weight um, uh, in the stock market today, particularly in the software space, those all started as venture-backed companies. And so I think if you followed his argument, you wouldn't have Apple to buy. You wouldn't have Google. You wouldn't have Meta. You wouldn't have Amazon. You wouldn't have NVIDIA and all these other stocks. So I, I think that argument is fundamentally flawed um, by looking at a specific moment in time. Uh, and you have to look at the broader role that venture capital plays in driving innovation and driving, um, you know, company formation and ultimately driving employment and then ultimately driving a really, really critical driver of GDP. Um, so I think it, it, it has a fundamental and important place in our broader economy. Um, and I think if you were to play that logic, um, not only I think would you miss out on potential returns, but you would also take out a really important foundational component of, of, of where value is being created globally uh, in today's economic environment. That was Lily Lyman, general partner at Underscore VC. Thanks so much for joining the podcast, Lily. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. A new ruling from the Small Business Administration offers up to $5 billion of available loans for venture capital funds to invest in small businesses. The SBIC loans can only be used to invest in U.S.-based startups or in funds that invest in U.S.-based startups. Investments into startups that focus on national security interests is one of the aims of the SBA. Bailey DeVries, the SBA's associate administrator and head of its Office of Investment and Innovation, told Dan Primack of Axios, quote, The headlines about record venture capital investment miss that tons of that money is going into things like B2B SaaS instead of hard technologies and critical technologies that are vital to our global competitiveness and national security. According to Axios' Primac, the federal spigot is now open. For more on how this will affect venture capital, I spoke with Ansaf Karim. Thanks, Jackson. I'm Ansaf Karim. I'm founder and managing partner of Latitude Capital. Ansaf, can you help us understand what an SBIC loan is and what exactly the federal government is offering to VC funds here? Yeah, I'd say at a high level, you know, um, the SBA and more specifically SBIC is very focused on providing tools and and assets for specific firms to be able to leverage those resources and be able to invest it into the U.S. economy and specifically towards small business and entrepreneurship. And so uh, a lot of the changes, which I'm sure we'll get into today, are very much focused on being more flexible and creating even more empowerment for those funds and vehicles to be able to hopefully spur and, and create more innovation in the economy. 
Several times over the past weeks, we've reported on the many startups who are struggling right now as VC capital is drying up in down markets. Will this insertion of billions of loan dollars give VC firms the capital to revitalize some of these dying startups who are at the end of their cash flow runway? That's a good question. I'd say I kind of take it into two different um, pieces. The first piece is uh, extending cash runways for startups that might be struggling. I think that's a tough internal investment decision a lot of venture firms have to think through regardless of whether or not they have the capital to actually provide further financing for some of these firms. Um, But I do think that if there is additional capital available, it certainly does create a certain a new vector into their decision making process with regards to how to think about extending further dollars to some of these companies. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of the investors are really making a decision on the fate of the company and their and their own faith in the ability of that company to continue to scale and grow um, in many cases where some of those companies might be hitting a more uh, rough patch or even potentially a immovable obstacle in front of them. And so I think on the first hand, it's, just, it's still a very much an investment decision, maybe barring any kind of external capital availability. On the capital itself, I do think that creating some extra cushion there or having other options that aren't just their existing captive capital could create, at least psychologically and potentially tactically, more opportunity for some firms to consider using some of this leverage into some of those opportunity sets. But I don't imagine it making a um, seismic shift in the way that we think about that problem. Ansaf, do you expect most firms will be interested in applying for the loans? I think it's certainly something that uh, firms will be looking into. I don't. I, my general sense is that many in the venture community haven't uh, looked into or been exposed to this in the past. I certainly haven't until uh, more recently reading into it. Um, I'd say that some of the changes that the government has made do certainly seem to be progressive and forward-looking and understanding not only one the role that technology and innovation play in the in the economy, but also how to actually structure some of these. Um, product in a way that actually meets the long duration focus of many venture capital firms and and sort of generally startups that take obviously several years to come to fruition. And so I think the changes that you saw announced today are very much focused on creating more of that flexibility and so that um, it's aligned very much with sort of the longer venture uh, orientation versus more of the traditional investment focus of let's say a PB firm or something that's a little bit more shorter duration. Does this give VC funds more freedom to invest in riskier and more volatile small business sectors? It's a good question. I think that, uh, look, generally, like I mentioned in, um, earlier, I do think that fundamentally VC should be performing the job of underwriting these businesses on a bespoke basis, on a deal-by-deal basis, and making sure that the investment itself feels like it will deliver the right type of uh, opportunity and return. Um, I do think that my my reading in between the lines is that, you know, obviously some of the changes that the SBA has announced around this does seem to imply that they are looking to certainly align incentives over longer term projects. And the idea being that some of these companies might take longer to come to fruition, but that's okay because they're actually going to be potentially more uh, focused on longer term outcomes that could be moonshotty in, in nature. And so I think that that will create potentially some opportunity for venture firms to think a little bit about how can they have more flexibility when it comes comes to taking some of these long-term bets. Um, so I, I'd say, again, it sort of certainly will have some impact, but I don't imagine it being a tectonic shift in the way that uh, VC firms are necessarily thinking. It, it still comes down to driving a great return for their for their partners and, and their investors. That was Ansaf Karim, founder and managing partner of Latitude Capital. Ansaf, thanks for being on the show. Perfect. Always a pleasure, Jackson.
Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all next week. Thank you.